As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Pull up a chair, turn up the volume, it's time for another episode of Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they wanted to be, the movie star they wanted to marry, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. With any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show, and if they do, you can always play that I Lost the Bet card. If you happen to be an author and you think your writing career can withstand a guest appearance on the show, feel free to stalk me on Facebook or Twitter. You found the show, so finding me can't be that hard. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Happy Friday, everyone. It's time for another public display of Imagination Adventure. We're so glad to have you along for the ride. This week, we're going to talk with an author whose very first book was published and sold in about 40 different countries overseas. But it's not the story of overnight success. It's the story of right attitude, willingness to make alterations, and finding an agent who was willing to invest the time in an author with a great story to tell and a willingness to work hard at the craft. So you're going to be hearing the details of that story. That'll come up in the third segment of our conversation, and I promise you that you're going to hear a multitude of other fantastic writing insight about storylines, characters, and the art of writing from our first hello to the final goodbye in this conversation oh yeah and we're going to talk about his latest release too so you'll get to hear about a hot off the press page turner at no extra charge we're just going to throw that in for you so if you're an avid reader in search of your next favorite author you've tuned in to the right podcast and if you happen to be one of our many listeners who's working away at the keyboard each day fine-tuning your upcoming international bestseller well (laughs) We've got you covered, too, and I'm sure you're going to find something in today's conversation that will be an encouragement to you and stoke your writing motivational fire. But before we connect with our guest and launch today's adventure, for the last couple of weeks, you've heard us giving you little tidbits of news and information about the public display of imagination books on the Pond Initiative. Yeah, we're really excited about this. And this week, I want to tell you that we've gotten... Books in the mail from several authors and publicity houses who are making donations to help stock the bookshelves so that we can put together great book bundles for the 10 minor league baseball franchises of the Southern League that we've kind of adopted as a podcast family. And I say it that way because I count those of you 
who support the program and those of you who do little things to encourage me along the way as a very big part of this. Each of the 10 member franchises of the Southern League of Minor League Baseball has a roster of 30 to 35 players, coaches, and trainers, and we're working in cooperation with the league office to establish a 25 to 30 volume library in each visiting clubhouse for each franchise in the league. This will give players, coaches, trainers, and even Southern League umpiring crews a go-to book nook in every city of the league that they can use as a resource for great page-turning works of fiction that they can pick up, put in their travel bag, and take with them as they travel throughout the upcoming spring and summer. My wife Kathy and I are big baseball fans, and we're very excited about this opportunity, and we're really appreciative of the authors and the publicists who have reached out to us and responded by donating just a book or two, sometimes three or four, to help us stock the bookshelves and make some of the best thriller and mystery fiction available to the players and coaches in the Southern League. Now, if you're wondering what titles came in and who sent stuff our way, well, good. You'll just have to follow the show on Twitter and Facebook because we'll be posting pictures of all the book donations over the coming weeks. And I just wanted to take a moment up front to say thank you to those of you who are supporting us in this endeavor. It's encouraging in a very, very big way. You're moving that needle for us, and you're making a difference. So thank you very, very much for that. Right now, let's introduce today's tour guide, because he's just released book number four in the Nick Heller series. It's called House on Fire, and I'm looking forward to giving you a chance to eavesdrop on our conversation. So here we go. He's a New York Times best-selling author of 14 suspense thrillers and counting. His novels High Crimes and Paranoia were adapted as major motion pictures. Guilty Minds and Company Man won Barry Awards for Best Thriller Novels. Killer Instinct won the International Thriller Writers Thriller Award for Novel of the Year. Buried Secrets won the Strand Critics Award for Best Novel. In 2009, he introduced readers to private spy Nick Heller in the runaway bestseller Vanished. Nick Heller's story continued across the pages of the equally riveting thrillers Buried Secrets and Guilty Minds. Today's tour guide is a master storyteller who's going to walk us into the pages of the most recent Nick Heller case, House on Fire. Founding member of the International Thriller Writers Association, Joseph Fender, takes us on an adventure into the world of a billionaire pharmaceutical kingpin with plenty to hide. Joe, thanks so much for setting aside the time. It's great to be here. Great talking with you. Oh, man, I've looked into this story and, and I'm just I'm excited to, to dig into the pages of it. You've written a long list of highly successful standalone novels. We mentioned High Crimes, Paranoia. I could add Suspicion, The Fixer, Zero Hour, all novels that when you look at the summary just make you want to pick them up and dig in. You're still composing some standalones. I think you just released one in 2019 called Judgment. But today we're digging into book number four in a series. When you were writing Vanished, 
is there something that said, hey, this is the launch of a series as opposed to it being another standalone? Or were you geared towards writing a series from the outset with this? Yeah, you know, I had been asked by readers. I'd gotten lots of emails over the years saying, when are you going to bring Jason back? Or when are you going to bring Adam back? Or they would name a character in one of my books like Paranoia or Killer Instinct or something. Mm. When are you going to bring this character back? And I, I realized, and I felt the same way, people love to connect themselves to continuing characters. And the problem with continuing the characters in any of my standalones is that they've all had their lives turned upside down. And it seems almost cruel to visit any more upon them than what's already happened in one book. There's a, there's a difference between a story, a standalone story, and a series novel story. When you read a series novel, you're basically pretty confident that the hero is not going to get killed off, right? Right, You also, right. also realize that the hero is not going to have his life turned inside out because you can't do that with every series novel. The series character is almost always an investigator someone who can appear book after book. So that's all sort of a long-winded way of saying that when I started writing Vanished, I planned this as the beginning of a series. I sort of thought, this character, Nick Heller, is someone who I can stick with and who can do book after book. And so I sort of designed him for that purpose. So I, I made him someone who had a military background because I wanted him to be really good at dealing with weapons and dealing with combat and that kind of thing. And uh, I also made him someone who had sort of an, an interesting and kind of strange upbringing. He was raised in a rich family, Nick was. His father was sort of a Wall Street tycoon. And then his father was exposed as a, uh, a, a cheater, a fraudster, really. And he went on the lam and was eventually arrested. And Nick's family went from being incredibly rich to being incredibly poor. Mm. And the father disappeared and the father went to prison. So basically, Nick has been rich and he's been poor. And he's sort of cynical about wealthy people and large corporations and that kind of thing. So there was a lot of backstory to Nick that I knew I could dig into with each book. So basically, I knew when I started writing Vanish that he, this was going to be a series and that we were going to see more of the Nick Heller character. So when you're writing a character like Nick that's going to have additional adventures along the way as succeeding books in the series are penned, you can give him fresh scars, but you can't yep. put him in rehab. You can't disable him. You can't really right. do any permanent damage, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. He, he, Nick gets hurt in combat, but if he's going to be shot and incapacitated, that means he's, he, he can't be a, a, a series hero anymore. So, yeah, it sort of limits what you can do to your main character. But I think I'm OK with those limits. I think that within those limits, you can tell an awful lot of story and some good stories, too. So I don't consider it a limitation to have a series character. It's sort of like watching TV where you sort of you're bonding with the character episode after episode and you're getting deeper and deeper into him. 
So each one of my books, you know, you can read them in, in any order. There's no prescribed order to the books. You can read them in any order. Um, each one of my books, though, gets deeper and deeper into Nick. And you find out more and more about his backstory. And that's one of the cool things about doing a series is that I can do something like that. It sounds like you're developing a little bit of a personal lasting fondness for the character yep. that you wouldn't have in a standalone because I've solved the case. We've got to the end of the story. I can kind yep. of let them go, file them on the shelf, and we're done. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. And in fact, I do have a bond to Nick Hellards. I didn't know this would happen, but, you know... He's not me. He's sort of a wish fulfillment version of me. Um, he's the guy who will think of the clever comment to make in a conversation, as opposed to me. And I always think of him later on. I think of the, the you know what I mean, the remarks yeah. later on. Uh, so Nick's Nick's clever. Nick can Nick can also is is contrarian. He doesn't go with the crowd. He's not a company man. You know, so. When I'm writing my standalones, I find that I miss writing Nick Heller. When I go back to writing the series books, it's like coming home. It's mm. like I'm I'm familiar already with his voice and his his uh, colleagues and his family. And the truth is, I, of, I often have to reread my Nick Heller books before I start a new one. But it's sort of like returning to an old friend. And it's a terrific feeling. I love writing as Nick Heller. Mm. I've seen him described as a high-powered intelligence investigator with a stubborn streak. Yep. C.J. Box said he'd follow him anywhere, and Brad Taylor said he's somewhat of a cross between Jason Bourne and Sam Spade. Yeah. But I'm kind of wondering, is Nick a, a good guy? Is Nick got a little bit of a bad guy weaved in there somewhere? Is he somewhere in between? I mean, is it all depending on your perspective as to whether or not he's up in your Kool-Aid or, or, you know, dealing with somebody else? Yeah. Well, I think Nick, Nick's a good guy. Um, and there are always cases in the books where he has to break a law or bend a law or something like that. And, so is he a bad guy? No, he's sort of breaking laws for good reasons. Mm. So I think that, you know, Nick, Nick has a pretty strong moral center. And there are cases he won't take because he doesn't like the guys. It's, it's not like a defense lawyer who will take anybody, and no matter how evil and twisted they may be. If Nick is, is approached by someone he doesn't like or doesn't trust, he just won't take the job, won't take the case. So yeah, he's got a he's got a moral center. In House on Fire, Nick has just lost an old army buddy named Sean, and at the funeral, a stranger approaches him with a job that feels like it's kind of a mess. In fact, it feels like it's kind of the type of mess that no one really walks away from in good health if they if they <laughs> dig in too far. Give us a. Uh, Give us a little bit of introduction to House on Fire. What, what are you getting Nick into here? Yeah, so his he gets this terrible news that his old friend, Sean, has died of an overdose of opioids. Sean was very important to Nick because Sean saved Nick's life in Afghanistan. And, and Nick became the godfather to one of Sean's sons. And there's a, there's a real close relationship there. 
and he and Nick feels terrible about the fact that his friend Sean has died. He goes to the funeral, and you know he's sort of angry at the notion at, at, at how easy it is to get addicted to opioids and how easy it is to overdose. Mm-hmm. You know, so anyway, he's at the funeral, and this woman comes up to him and says that she is the daughter of the founder of the company whose opioids Sean overdosed on. Mm. And she wants to be a whistleblower in the family. That is, she says that there is a, a buried secret in this family that she wants Nick to dig up. And if Nick digs it up, he will bring down her family and bring down the pharmaceutical empire that the family owns. So, and Nick hears this and he he can't say yes fast enough. Mm. I mean, he wants to take revenge on this company and he'll do anything to, to further that. So Nick jumps at it and it turns out, of course, as you point out, it is messy. It's a, uh, a situation in which Nick will encounter a lot of people who don't want him digging up any secrets on the company or on the founder, Conrad Kimball. And the more people go after him, the more Nick says, there's obviously a story here and I'm going to find it. Damn it. Yeah. So that's sort of, that's sort of how we get plunged into house on fire. It really feels like he has a personal reason to be involved and see this through. I'm curious when it's brought to his attention, especially by the woman that brings him this insider knowledge, so to speak. I mean, there's, Joe, there's a big difference between lighting a fire under someone's seat cushion to help them embrace your agenda and mm-hmm. burning things to the ground. And and Suki just seems hell-bent on the latter of those two options. Does she have daddy issues, or did things get really personal for her at some point? Yeah, well, this is the question that Nick has. What is her issue with the family? And so what Nick has to do is he has to get to know the other members of the family. But they're not going to trust an outsider. Mm-hmm. So he basically starts off his investigation by going to an 80th birthday party for the father figure, the Conrad Kimball. And he goes as Suki's boyfriend. And because he's going out with her, or they say that he's going out with her, he is able to sort of be in touch with family members and talk to them and find out what they know. So he is gradually finding out what Suki is all about. Why does she want to burn the family down and burn the company down? Mm -hmm. And what we find out early on is that she wants basically to make the company stop selling these opioid drugs and instead start selling anti-opioid drugs, that is drugs to get people who are, who are addicted off of the drugs. Okay, okay. Yeah, so she's, you know, she's got what seems to be a, a good reason to do it, and the only way she's going to have the power to do this is if Nick digs up the secret on her father. But it's not cut and dried, you know. He'll find out that Suki has other motivations, and this is part of the mystery of the story. 
Yeah, that's that's one of the things that when I saw that, if, if I'm standing in his army boots, that's the first question that I've got to sit back and ponder is what is her angle? Why is she, you know, on her own family? Because she seems like that she would have some connections to this. You said that she's kind of wanting to turn things into a more positive angle. Joe, yeah. we've all been exposed to the pharmaceutical ads. Sometimes I wonder if they don't create a disease just so they can cure it. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, pharmaceutical companies are in the business of making and selling meds, selling mm-hmm. drugs. And what's going to happen in House on Fire is that Nick's going to find out that this company, Kimball Pharmaceuticals, basically sold their opioid drug to doctors to, who persuaded them to, to prescribe this drug by hiding from them the fact that the company knew how addictive it was, mm. but they buried that. So they told doctors the drug was not addictive, so which was a lie. And they also paid off doctors to prescribe. There's all kinds of bad activity going on. And you'll read about stuff like this with some of the companies that make opioid drugs, yeah. that they actually hid from doctors how dangerously addictive the drug is so it's not so far-fetched it's sort of not so far removed from reality yeah i think it traffics right in some of the things that we've all been experienced and and maybe don't know for sure but quite possibly wonder how deep this rabbit hole goes initially nick kind of sees this job as a paper chase he's just looking to document what the accusations are, and maybe get some leverage. But he soon finds out that the paper trail goes uh, way beyond this lucrative family business, right? Yep. And it, it involves it involves doctors. It involves people who work for this company. Uh, it goes back some 30 years. And he's, he finds this is probably the toughest case he's ever had. Mm. Because it's, so much of this is of the secret is buried. And by the secret, I mean how Kimball Pharmaceutical Company uh, concealed the addictiveness from doctors. And that's only one of the secrets that Nick ends up digging up. He ends up digging a number of secrets up and finding that he's got a lot of enemies all of a sudden. Characters and character development. We're going to dig into both of those things on the other side of this break. Joseph Fender is my guest. His book, House on Fire, it's book number four in the Nick Heller series. You don't want to go anywhere, folks. We will be right back. I hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as I am. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to talk with our guests just a little bit more on the other side. Stay tuned. This is David Morrell, the author of First Blood, Brotherhood of the Rose, Creepers, and Murder as a Fine Art. And you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. When I'm alone, this podcast is made possible by the generous support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash pdi and become a valued part of the show. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash p-d-i. Your support moves that needle. You Amazon, don't you? 
Yeah, you do. Oi. I've been playing these Amazon spots for several months now, asking listeners to show support for the show and help offset some of the production expenses by using the links to Amazon that can be found on the host page for each adventure. Several have taken advantage of that opportunity, and the overrides from Amazon are starting to trickle in. Thank you so very much. A few people have mentioned that they use the links, but they just don't buy books every week. Folks, here's the great thing. If you use the link to get to Amazon, you can shop for whatever you want or whatever you need once you get there. Amazon, folks, do your shopping. It helps the show. It helps you. Thank you for taking that extra step. It's one of the best ways that you can show support for the show. Click, search, buy. It's that easy. And remember, if Amazon doesn't have it, you probably don't need it. So if you're going to do some of your shopping on Amazon, please let us be your doorway. Ah, crackling rules that get on board. We gonna ride till there ain't no more gold. Ever feel like you're spinning your wheels, grinding your gears, or just beating your head against a brick wall that's not even aware it's being relentlessly pounded? I've been there and done that many times over. I bet you have too. If you sometimes feel that your best efforts are producing minimal results, then the second book in my motivational series will probably strike a chord with you. It's called Don't Forget Your Cape. Pick up a copy on Amazon and let me introduce you to your inner superhero. Now let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. I'm talking with Joseph Fender. We're talking about his book, House on Fire. It's book four in the Nick Heller series. Joe, I know that every author has to have a presence on social media. They have to have a homepage, a website, a place where people can Google and find them. But just about every author I talk to also is somewhat uh, involved in social media. You have to be today in on some levels, but there's so many different playgrounds that you can't be active in all or you'd never write the yep. next book. Yeah, exactly. If somebody you wanted know, to follow you or or maybe even comment about something they've read in one of your books, what's, what's the best place for them to find you online? A couple of places. I'm on Facebook at Joseph Fender. Um, I've got a pretty active uh, fan site there. Uh, and I am, ans- I, I am asked questions and I always answer them. I'm on Twitter as well, at Joe Fender, J-O-E-F-I-N-D-E-R. And I've got a website, of course josephfinder.com and by the way i was one of the first authors to have a website i remember talking to my editor back then about my new website and he just said joe people don't buy books on the internet it's a waste of your time (laughs) right you know right so now it turns out that authors pretty much have to have a social media presence and if they don't their publishers have to do it for them Mm -hmm. but people expect to be able to reach out to authors online yeah, they expect to be able to find you, to find out a little bit more about you. I mean, on a personal page, as opposed to something that somebody else is writing about your work, and there's tons of those as well. And folks, that's why we put the links on the host page for each adventure so that you can get right to the page where you want to be. It's going to be Joe's Twitter, Joe's Facebook, Joe's homepage. That's where we're going to take you. We introduced Nick in our open as a private spy. 
Yep. What's the defining difference between private spy and what we're more accustomed to hearing private eye? Right. Well, Brad Taylor in his quote actually gets right to it, which is that Nick is sort of a cross between Jason Bourne and Sam Spade. So what I mean is a private spy is a private investigator, the classic private investigator that Chandler and Hammett invented years ago and that we read about uh, like Spencer for hire, you know, and and uh, characters like that. But there's more to Nick than just the investigation part. He is also hired to do operations, to sort of penetrate a company, to sort of fly overseas and meet with someone and and smuggle someone out of the country. So he is acting as an intelligence agent. He's acting as a spy as well as being a private eye. So that's why I call him a private spy. And he takes the cases that he wants as opposed to the ones that are just pushed to his desktop. Yeah, he's the boss. And Nick, you know, he used to be uh, in the Army and Special Forces, which he loved. Then he went to work for the Pentagon as an intelligence agent in Washington and ran afoul of that, of his employers. And it turned out that Nick is just not the sort of guy who will succeed in a company. He would not be good with a boss. So Nick's his own boss, which means he'll take a case that maybe sometimes he shouldn't, but he finds that out later, or he won't take a case that maybe he should. But no matter what, he doesn't have to answer to anybody. You've surrounded him with a couple of people. How how did you build that kind of... I don't want to say team, but that support mm-hmm. individual that's kind of the person that that Nick can really depend on. What was it that made them fit? There has to be that teamwork type of connection for it yep. to have legs in a series. Yeah. I mean, either the, your character is a drifter, sort of like Jack Reacher, or he's someone who has colleagues and regular friends and family that we see book after book. And I wanted Nick to have a family, essentially, not be married or, and, and have kids or anything like that. I wanted him not to be tied down. But I wanted us to see his father, who's in prison, Victor Heller, who's an evil man. Uh, I wanted us to see his brother, Roger, who gets into trouble in, in the book Vanished. I wanted him to be sort of a father figure in some ways. So he's got a a nephew named Gabe who appears in each one of the books and is sort of like a surrogate son to Nick. Gabe's kind of an odd guy, and uh, it sort of brings out a side to Nick that that we wouldn't see otherwise, I guess I should say. And he's got a woman named Dorothy who works for him as his tech assistant, and she is as good at computers as Nick is not. Nick is not computer savvy. But he's smart enough to hire someone who is computer savvy. So he's got this whole team. I think it's okay to use that expression. He's got this whole team of colleagues, and he draws upon his old comrades from the Army, some of whom have gone into private practice, and he's able to hire them. So he's got sort of a regular cast of characters who we see and get to see more and more of from book to book. Mm. I'm often told that the villain, quote unquote, is the hero of his own story. But for me, 
an interesting villain has to bring more to the table than just a delusional mindset, right? I mean, there has to be mm-hmm. more that makes me care about what this person has in mind as far as their outlook on the world at large and them being taken apart or brought to justice. Mm-hmm. I, I actually believe that the villain is the hero of his own story. Uh, and the reason I do is that we, we really want to be afraid of the villain. And we want the villain to be absolutely committed to what he's doing. And we want it to be plausible that he would, that a villain would do what he was going to do. Right. Yeah. And the only way it's going to, it's going to be plausible is if he genuinely thinks that he's the hero and he's fighting bad guys to him. So the villain, depending on the book, the villain can be very important. And he's got to be someone who believes in the bad stuff he's doing and doesn't believe it's bad. Villains don't think of themselves as bad guys. No, they think of themselves as if if I don't do it, it won't get done, and it's got to get done, right? Am I right. oversimplifying that? No, that's, that's right. Exactly right. So, you know, when Nick encounters villains in his books, he sort of has a certain respect for them because he knows they believe in what they're doing, as bad as it may be. We meet our kingpin in House on Fire. He's smart. The The business is well-structured. The partners are well-connected. But the more elaborate the plot line becomes, the easier it is sometimes for it to get away from a writer. Talk to me about the balance between keep it simple and give it legs. You, you've got to give it some depth, but if the veins and arteries run too deep, then all of a sudden it can get out of control, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good metaphor. Um, ultimately, what I'm doing is I'm writing a page turner. I'm writing something in which I want people to always want to read one more chapter before they go to bed, you know, and I want to keep people up late. And the way to do that is to have a strong drive, a strong narrative drive. There are books I've read in which you get so confused by many characters or many separate subplots that you lose track of what the main storyline is. So I basically make a point of keeping the focus on Nick, the central character. It's a first-person story, the Nick stories are. Mm-hmm. It's told from his point of view. We don't see anything that he doesn't see. So we are with him. And that way I'm able to avoid the clutter that happens in a lot of books when you've got too much going on. And I think people don't actually want to work that hard at reading a book. They want it to be fast and simple. But the flip side of this is I'm writing a book, not television. If you're writing a movie or TV series, it's much more action driven. The thing is you can do stuff in a book that you can't do on TV. So I want to do that stuff. That is, I want to, I want us to dig into characters and really get a sense of who they are in a way that's hard to do, I think, on a TV show or a movie. So there's a certain amount of depth that's good that makes us appreciate the characters more and root for Nick more and, and get scared for him. You know, so I think that 
I think we we actually want to have some depth of character. Yeah, yeah. I as you were, it doesn't slow it doesn't slow things down. <laughs> no, but as you were explaining that, I was thinking back to the old Batman movie, not the TV series, but the movie they did off of it. I saw it when I was a kid, and I remember mm-hmm. that Penguin, Joker, Riddler, Catwoman—they all from time to time in the movie would have this team meeting to discuss their strategies and who was right, who was wrong, who was taking the lead, and what situation. And you're saying that in a novel, something along that line could bog the novel down. And so you mm-hmm. believe that is kind of, it's implied that they met and they're working out their strategy, but I'm just not going to bore you with it for the next 30 pages. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You want to keep the focus close to the main character, especially in a series novel, in a, in a book in which there's, which is part of a series, mm-hmm. it's all about the character. You know, when you remember a book years later, you usually don't remember the plot, but you do remember the character. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's who we, that is who we bond with. And so that's why I have Nick Heller as a character who is complicated and interesting, but basically someone you really want to root for. And if you don't want to root for him, the book doesn't work. That's a really important distinction because you're right. We can think back on certain books and we may not remember every intricate detail of the plot line, but we do remember the characters that drove the plot line. And that's got to be on the forefront in the spotlight. Yeah, it's like, you know, when I was a kid, I used to read the Superman Mm -hmm. comic books and, and, and Superman was my hero. You know, he was he was someone who, had, who could do so many things. And I, I mean, I remember he can, he had all kinds of traits we wanted to have, you know, he had x-ray vision and heat vision and ice breath. I remember that. And, and we were, we're bonding with the hero of Superman. We don't actually remember what the stories were, what he got involved in. Right. It's the fact that it's Superman and how cool he is and how much we want to be like him. That's what, keeps us reading superman comics it's not the storyline yeah yeah absolutely it's the it's the hero you mentioned in our first segment that sometimes readers have asked you about different characters in different books i think you were referring mostly to some of your standalone books and i'm curious with authors not only do they have to handle the storyline itself with delicate precision at times but they also have to handle these characters because it is easy to fall in love with the characters, especially if you develop them enough for the reader to care about them. How do you deal with a character that maybe really you're attracted to, but she's not the woman that you want to go away with a weekend for? The character, you mean? Yeah, I mean, because it, it seems like that along the way, there's all these interesting characters that I could build mm-hmm. little stories with. But if you do that, then you're off of your main path, which is proceeding and, and forwarding the story. You've now taken a rabbit yep. trail because this one character, this one girl at the bar with Christine yep. makeup, just really caught your eye. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are there are characters I write who I find really interesting. I want us, us to see more of. And what, I mean... While I was writing House on Fire, I remember I wanted Nick to be hired by a member of the family at the funeral. And I knew she was going to be, she was a very wealthy woman because they're all, you know, she's a daughter of a billionaire. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And she's an, sort of an artsy woman. She does, she makes documentaries. She has issues with her father. But the more I wrote these, these scenes with Suki, the more interesting I found her. And it turned out that Nick's relationship to Suki is at the center of the book, his relationship with this woman. So I do let characters grow as I write a book. I mean, I don't sort of hem myself in. And the good thing about the Nick Heller series is Nick is always going to be in the center of focus. Mm -hmm. And everyone else is subsidiary to him. Steve Barry once told me that you don't go looking for your ideas, that ideas kind of find you while you're usually busy doing something different. When yep. you get a spark of an idea, something that kind of sticks with you, feels like that if you fan the flames just a little bit, it might it might grow into something. Do you play with it right away or do you just let it simmer through a few moments of doing something else and see if it stays with you? Yeah, no, I, when I get an idea, I write it down. I have a file on my computer of thriller ideas or Nick Heller ideas, or I'll read something in the newspaper or magazine and I'll rip it out and put it in this thick file that I have of story ideas, but I do not dig into them. I, I sort of wait to see whether these ideas stick with me so that a year later when I'm done with the current book I'm working on, if I go to my ideas file and that idea still jumps out at me, still grabs me, still makes the hair on the back of my neck stick up, mm -hmm. you know, then I know I've got something. Oh, there are okay. plenty of times in which what something that seems really cool to me today will not be so interesting or intriguing three months from now. Yeah. So I sort of let the stories simmer on the back burner and do not play with them until I look again when it's time to start writing the new book, you know, and I will decide at that point if an idea excites me and which idea excites me the most, which one feels most urgent to me. So I get what Steve is saying. I think he's, he's got a point there. I never find myself going through the newspaper or going online to get an idea for a story. That never happens. Steve's right. The ideas come to you. And the stories that come to you and stick with you are the ones that are most exciting. And when, you're, when an author is excited starting off a book, the book is much better. I can't imagine starting off a book with an idea that I just thought of and, and I haven't let it simmer on the back burner with me. I always need to sort of have my subconscious sort of kick the tires of an idea. And that's a process that can take months or years. So my ideas are something that I've sort of lived with for a while. And what I find is when I start writing, all the subconscious work that went on kicks in. And I sort of, I'm able to tell a story that often surprises me, but it's because I let it simmer, because I let my subconscious work on it. The personal side of Joseph Fender. On the other side of this break, we're talking about his book, House on Fire. It's book four in the Nick Heller series. It's just recently released, so you can jump on Amazon, grab your copy. Man in a Brown Suit will drop it on your doorstep within 24 hours, and you'll be digging and turning pages. We're going to come back on the other side of this break. We'll go behind the scenes, pull back the curtain a little bit, and find out a little bit about the personal side 
of Joseph Fender. You don't want to go anywhere, folks. We'll be right back. It's time to take just another quick break. We're going to come back after this, and we're going to go behind the curtains with our guests, ask a few questions they're not expecting. Off-the-wall questions, off-the-wall answers. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. This is Meg Gardner, the author of Into the Black Nowhere, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. Write your soul down word for word to see who's your friend. This podcast is made possible by the gracious support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash pdi and become a valued part of the show. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash pdi. Your support moves the needle. As a podcaster and an author, I needed to create a viable presence online. A website gave me a digital operations base camp, but I needed a daily presence on the steep, slippery slopes of social media. I could either spend every waking hour trying to flag people down on the information superhighway, or I could develop a systematic approach with the help of an online management system. Folks, I was like a wing-weary butterfly with sore feet, looking for a soft place to land. Then a friend told me about Sendable. What a difference. What a time saver. Just a few clicks and I was test driving my 30-day free trial. I had tech support. I had quick customer service response time. I had my solution. Sendable. There's a link to it on the host page for this episode. Click on it, check them out, and experience the magic. Why do you do what you do? It's a useful question to ponder. If you knew that no one would hear your song, would you still sing, knowing that the chairs in the auditorium will be empty? Would you still take the stage and dance just as enthusiastically? Why do you do what you do? Hello Is This On is the third book in my motivation series, and it brings you face to face with that very question. Pick up a copy on Amazon and discover why you can trust your stuff and let it eat. Now let's get back to the show. All right, we're back. My guest, Joseph Fender, we're talking about his book, House on Fire. It's book four in the Nick Heller series. But Joe, I know every author, when we're talking about a book that's getting ready to release, they are already putting some finishing touches into another work that they've been toiling away on. I want to give you an opportunity to tell us what you can about what's next on your stool of fun. What are you carving? Uh, no, I, I actually don't want to talk about the book I'm working on. Really? Okay. I've sort of, I've sort of, it's sort of like it, what it does is it lets the air out of the balloon. Mm. I need to sort of keep it in my own head for a while until I'm fairly well into the book. Once I really, I'm, you know, halfway through it or at least halfway through it, I find I'm able to talk about it without sort of letting the air out of the balloon. Yeah. So yeah. What, I'll, I'll tell you this, it is a standalone takes place in Boston, and I'm a little biased here, but it's really probably the most exciting book I've worked on. So Okay. That's a nice yeah. little dangling carrot. Does every book take about the same amount of time for you, or is every book different? I, I know some authors churn out a book like Clockwork on a certain calendar date each year, but is, is every mm-hmm. book a little bit different as to how long it takes to put together for you? Yeah. Each, each book takes a different amount of time. Um, I do a book a year, so... 
I'm limited by that. I can't spend two years working on a book. I've got to do it. I can spend six months or nine months working on a book, but I can't spend a year and a half on it. There's a saying that I have pinned up on my computer monitor that says, the show doesn't go on because it's ready. This is from the guy who who founded Saturday Night Live, the TV series. The show doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's 1130. Ah, okay. So, you know, in the case of Saturday Night Live, the uh, the show has to go on at a certain time. And when you write a book a year, the book has to be ready at a certain time. And if it's not, you don't make that deadline of doing a book a year. Have you, so, ever, uh, have you ever had conversations with your editor or publicist or whoever's on the other end? And it's like, you know what? I really need a couple more weeks to mm-hmm. tweak something in this book. I definitely have. I mean, do I do it all the time? Yeah. And my editor, to his credit, will basically encourage me to do whatever I want to do, spend more time, which means he has to read it faster and edit it faster, or they have to speed up something in the publication process. Uh, and my publisher has been really accommodating about that in order to keep me on the book a year schedule. But for, I have to do my part, which is to sort of not spend over a year doing it there are some books i could spend a couple years working on for mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. and they they turn out to be different kind of books yeah but i actually choose my story ideas based on whether i can write this book within a year i used to write a different kind of thriller i wrote international thrillers in the sort of robert ludlam vein mm-hmm. and they were set in cities all around the world and I would travel to these cities and do research to make it feel as real as possible. But I realized I could not do an international thriller and do a book a year. I had to sort of move the focus in and and write on a smaller canvas, sort of, so to speak, yeah. so that I can do a book a year. Wow. I remember, I think it was a little over a year ago, I talked with Stephen James. He told me he got to the end of one of his books. He writes the Patrick Bowers series, or he was writing that series at the time. I think he's going on to launch something new at this point. But he told me he got to the end of one of his books and he just wasn't happy with it. And when he stepped away from it, he realized that he needed to change who the killer was, that the the story was a much better story if he made that change. Have you ever gotten toward the end of something and realized that if I take a left at Albuquerque instead of staying on this northern path here, Mm -hmm. I've got a much more interesting twist that I can explore. Yep, yep, I certainly have. And i got to tell you, it is one of the most exciting moments in writing a book when you come up with a twist. The thing is, if you come up with a twist that you didn't expect to begin with, Mm -hmm. that means you're going to be surprising the reader. Yeah. And if you surprise the reader, they're much more, they're much happier. So I remember when I was writing my book, Paranoia, which was my first New York Times bestseller, about halfway through it, I suddenly knew how it was going to end. And it was going to end completely differently from what I planned. Yeah. And it was a great twist in the book. And it's one that all my readers sort of think is is probably my best twist. And the light bulb went on over my head. And what I had to do is go through it and do some rewriting, but not a huge amount, and sort of right toward the end, write the book with a different ending in mind. But basically, because 
it surprised me that this twist, because it surprised me, it surprises every reader. Yeah. Yeah, that's where the adrenaline comes from in writing, isn't it? I mean, it's not so much just the pounding out the next paragraph or the explaining what just happened in the page before, mm -hmm. but it's the discovery of, whoa, what did I just walk into? And and I love it when an author describes a moment like that. Yeah, it's a it's it's one of the cool things about writing, uh, and and it's one of the reasons why I try to avoid outlining a book to the very end. Mm -hmm. And the way I generally do it is I'll sort of outline the first maybe 25% of the book. I'll get get it set up, get us going in the story. And then I sort of I'm, – I'm on my own without an outline. And day to day I make it up. And I always come up with ideas that I would not have done in an outline. You know, there are some writers – who outline everything to the end, and there are some writers who do no outlines whatsoever. I'm sort of in the middle. Mm. I sort of do a, a partial outline and then write it, as they say in the business, by the seat of my pants. Wow. Yeah. Folks, this is what drives me to the keyboard. This is what gets me excited about going and sitting down and, and working on a story. And hopefully it does the same thing for you. I mean, when I hear things along this line, it's it's one of the reasons that I'm addicted to the interrogations week after week of finding an author that is willing to talk to me and let me inside their process because that's what really, I guess, lights the flame on that candle that keeps me going. It's rare that an author finishes their initial draft, works it through the initial edits, gets it in the hands of an agent, and finds a welcome market for the book right away. Right. Joe, tell us about your first published book. What's the backstory? How did it find its way from your first draft to its first ray of sunshine in the market? Yeah, well, you know, I gave myself a deadline of three years when I was in my 20s to write a novel and... Uh, and and get it sold and i so i wrote a draft of a novel this is one that that eventually became the moscow club my first novel i wrote a draft of it and i sent it to an agent who was a friend of a friend of mine and he represented all, all kinds of big writers and a couple days later i got a letter this is back in the days of letters you know before email <laughs> i got a letter from him rejecting the book uh, and saying, you know, but best wishes and blah, blah, blah. So I did something that I think most writers would not do. I actually called the guy up, called his literary agency in New York, asked to speak to him, and he got on the phone, and I said, you know, I'm not calling to argue with you. I get the fact that you don't want to, you don't want to take the book, but tell me why. Yeah. Tell me what you didn't like about it. And I think he was relieved that I wasn't calling to argue. And he spent easily half an hour, maybe close to, closer to an hour, really? uh, telling me, going through the book and telling me what I did wrong. Wow. And, you know, you get a rejection and it, and it hurts sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's like a mm -hmm. kick in the stomach. But talking to this guy, I realized I was really learning from him. And so what I did was I... I spent the next three months rewriting the book along the lines that he suggested. And I sent it to him again and he turned it down and I called him up and I said, okay, so if you don't mind, tell me what I didn't, <laughs> what I didn't get right this time. 
And he was very nice. And he spent another half an hour on the phone with me and talked me through it. And then he said, but uh, don't send it to me again, okay? Wow. <laughs> I said, okay. This guy was too big deal an agent. He had he had only the biggest clients. He didn't want to waste his time on someone like me. Waste so his time? I basically, he had given you some good time. This is, what was the name of yeah. this book? Moscow? Moscow Club. Okay. Exactly. So basically what I learned, I learned from rejection. Yeah. I basically learned to be a better writer of suspense fiction because I'd been rejected a number of times. And when eventually I sent it to another agent, he accepted it. He said, but I'm asking you to revise, in fact, cut out the first 60 pages of the book. They're too slow. Mm -hmm. And he said, if you do that, I'm willing to represent you. And, you know, I heard that. And I just thought that's exactly what I needed. Yeah. Because I needed an agent who's going to make sure I have the, I'm, I turn out the best possible book. Mm hmm so he accepted it and he had me do some revision. And when that was done some months later, he sent it out and pretty quickly he got a publisher in it. Uh, and I, in fact, I was sold overseas to something like 40 countries eventually. Really? Um, for, for the, yeah, it was a huge deal for the Moscow club. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I guess there's a lesson there for beginning writers, mm. which is that, you're probably going to get rejected and don't take it the wrong way. Learn from rejection. If you can, if you can sort of learn what you did wrong and what you need to work on, what you need to be better at, you're going to become a better writer. So rejection can actually be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And being married to the right agent sounds like it's important connection as well. It's more than just someone that's willing to take on your manuscript and try to pitch it and sell it. But it sounds like you had an agent that was willing to come back to you and tell you, this is what I need to make it sellable. Yeah, that's right. And not every agent will do that. Mm. People often want to send their book to the agent who represents the biggest person in their field, you know, yeah. John Grisham or Dan Brown or someone like that. And those aren't necessarily the best agents for you. You want someone who's hungrier, who's actually willing to take the time to make sure your book gets into the best possible shape. And those are agents who are younger and earlier in their career and maybe don't have huge name clients on their list. And those are the those are the kind of agents who you want. So I always tell people, make sure that you send your book to an agent who's hungry or hungrier, not the biggest deal, not don't have to represent the biggest uh, clients, the biggest best selling writers. Yeah. And you want an agent that's going to be honest with you, too, even if the truth hurts. I'll tell you something I had. I learned something important about this process. The one I sent the book to my agent who said, are you willing to cut the first 60 pages? I got the book back from another agent who represented all kinds of big people. The same manuscript that got accepted by, by my agent, Henry Morrison, I sent to another agent before him. He turned it down with a paperclip on page 55. And mm -hmm. the note said, the paperclip indicates where I stopped reading. So the thing is, the agent who accepted me read beyond the first 50 or 60 pages and decided they were too slow. So he was willing to put in the time, whereas this other agent was not willing to put the time in. And I'm really glad I went with the guy who's willing to put in the time to make my books better. 
Wow. So this, you know, it's a it's a collaborative process. Yeah. This, this business. That's a great and story, you know right? you want to have the right kind of agent. Yeah. We discovered a little history about your published books in our open, but we didn't really mention that you've kind of lived around the world. You speak multiple languages, including, I think I read Farsi is one of the languages you speak. You could have pursued a career in music. You majored in Russian history. You graduated summa cum laude from Yale. You completed your master's at Harvard. You also taught it at Harvard before being recruited by the CIA. Hopefully I can reveal that part. It's... Become a spy or Careful. write spy thrillers. One sounds inherently safer than the other, Joe. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't. I didn't go for the writing job because it was safer necessarily. Okay. I actually I learned that if I was going to work for the CIA, I would basically be sitting in a cubicle translating Soviet economic journals from Russian to English. Wow! And that yeah. struck me. And you know, I was spoiled by Robert Ludlum. I had read the novels of Robert Ludlum, and I thought if you worked for the CIA, they gave you fake passports and a Swiss bank account, <laughs> you know, and a Glock pistol. Uh, it turned out not to be the case. Not the case. I think you made the right choice from the outside looking in. I was just. I, I think so. I do wonder yeah. sometimes when I talk to my friends in the CIA, and and I'm always interested in what they're doing. Yeah. Um, but I think, but I chose something that ultimately was more exciting for me. Yeah, I don't know that my opinion matters, but I'll just throw it out there. Most writers are also readers. With your background, you have read a wide variety of different types of things. I'm curious if something stands out from your childhood, your early days, maybe something you read that made an impression on you or really stuck with you that you read when you were young. Well, you know, my parents had all the paperbacks of the Ian Fleming, James Bond novels. Really? And and I just sort of pulled one off the shelf when I was probably too young to read it and uh, and sort of was caught up in this story and thought it was really cool. And wouldn't it be fun if I could write something like that? So mm -hmm. remember, as a kid, I mean, I'm talking like, you know, 11 or 12 years old or something like that. Um I sat down and wrote myself the beginning of a thriller. I wrote a couple of pages and sort of realized I had to do a little more reading to sort of figure out how to do a thriller. Eventually, when I decided to become a writer and I knew I wanted to write suspense novels, so I wanted to write thrillers, what I did was I read all the best thrillers that had been published. And I got, I made lists from talking to friends who were big thriller readers. I read these books and I took notes on index cards. I mean, I really studied them as if I was in graduate school. Yeah. So you, know, you learn, you learn so much. You learn even from reading a bad novel too, why it doesn't work. Mm. So I really taught myself to write by reading. Is there an author or maybe a book series that's a favorite of yours now? Something that we, when the new book comes out, you, you just can't wait to pick it up. Oh, well, um, there are a number of things. I've, you, there's a lot of good thriller writers out there. And um, I'll always read the new Michael Connolly. I'll always read the new Lee Child. I'll read Harlan Coben. There are writers who I just sort of regularly read and make sure a guy named chris pavoni for example yeah. uh so i i have regular people who i will always read 
And other times I'll sort of pick it up based on this on this jacket. Yeah. But you know, it's I, I sort of feel that there are a lot of good writers in my business and I learn from the best and I find I, I up my game by reading them mm. and, and sort of learning that way. So it's yeah, it's great to read not just for enjoyment, but for actually for learning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One morning as you're about to pour your first cup of coffee, you notice three ancient lock boxes sitting on the kitchen counter beside the coffee pot. There's a key and a note. The note says that the key will work on any of the three boxes, but you can only use it one time. The three lock boxes are labeled how it all got started, how it all ends, and how to escape when your back is against the wall. Which box do you open? Oh, I would definitely open how to escape when your back's against the wall. Um, I think that's some of the most exciting stuff you can write and some of the hardest stuff to write as well. I regularly paint myself into a corner and I'll sort of go home from my office and I'll just sort of think, man, I'm stuck now. What have I done to myself? And I usually solve it overnight, letting my subconscious work on it. But those stories that the sort of the narrow escape, Mm-hmm. that's 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 my bread and butter that's what i do that's sort of i like putting ordinary people into extraordinary circumstances and i like having them always narrowly escape so i would that's the box i'd choose joseph fender ladies and gentlemen joseph fender his newest release is house on fire it's book four in the nick heller series links to his books as well as his social media pages are posted on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Joe, all the best with the new book. Thank you so much for your time. This was absolutely fascinating. It's great talking with you. Thanks so much. I had such a great time talking with Joe about his work. I'm fired up and ready to write. How about you? I just... mm. The Nick Heller series is hot, folks, and House on Fire burns as bright as any of the award-winning volumes in the series that have come before it. In the open, you heard me talk about the book donations that we received this past week for the public display of Imagination Books on the Pond initiative. We've also had a few people comment that they don't have books to send, but they think it's a great idea and they're on board with the project. Folks, that's really encouraging when you take the time to send us a note like that. These folks have asked, how can they be a part of things? And again, I do feel like this is something that we're doing as a podcast family, and that's why I refer to it in that manner. We just couldn't do it without support from those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast and who do the little extra bit to show your support, whether it's using our Amazon links on the host pages for each adventure or signing up for one of the social media services that you see on the host pages for each adventure or pledging a dollar a month through our Patreon page. Every little bit helps and it all makes things like this possible. You've also heard me talk about the Public Display of Imagination Book Club You'll see a link to it in the navigation bar on the publicdisplayofimagination.com website. There's also a PDI book club icon on almost every page of the website, and that will take you right to the page to sign up. It's free to join, and we don't bombard you with emails week after week. We send out something about once a month or so, which gives you the opportunity to tell us what books you're currently reading. 
And we'll be using that feedback to build book blogs throughout the spring and the summer. So if you're an avid reader and you want a chance to make us and the rest of our listening audience aware of one of your most favorite authors, maybe it's an author you heard about on the podcast or Maybe it's an author that you're hoping we'll have on the podcast as a guest at some point in the future. Become a part of the PDI Book Club and let us know what you're reading. We'll be sending out our next book club email in just a couple of weeks. So now is the time for you to click on that link and get signed up. If you listen to the podcast but you've never visited our website, and I know that there's a lot of folks who listen on the various podcasts listening platforms that are out there. They've never visited the website. We want to encourage you to do so. Just key publicdisplayofimagination.com into your web browser, and when the page loads, you'll see a link for this adventure right on the very front page of the site. You're also going to see links to our other conversations under the podcast tab. There's even a link to the archives so that you can scan some of the adventures from long ago some of which may not have made their way over to the new website home just yet. We're still transitioning a lot of them, but it takes time because we've done a lot of interviews over the past three years. Who's your favorite author? Have we talked with them? There's only one way to find out, folks. Go to publicdisplayofimagination.com and visit the archives. Thanks for taking the time to join us. It's always good to have you along for the ride. Please take a moment to share a link to the podcast in your social media playground and tell someone else about the show. If you're not already following Public Display of Imagination on Twitter or Facebook, well, you need to look us up. Search for the name of the podcast or just key in the letters PDI, that's Papa Delta Indigo, and we'll pop up. We're even on Instagram. Yeah, imagine that. I'm now on Instagram with the podcast. You can hunt for us there, too. We'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or a review of the podcast on iTunes, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Deezer, whatever medium you're using to listen to the show. Ratings and reviews make a huge difference for any podcast, and we always appreciate your kindness. Next week, we're talking with another internationally acclaimed author about her latest release. She hails from Scotland, and you don't want to miss this, folks. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on whatever listening platform you use to listen to your favorite podcast. Help us spread the word and grow our listening audience. Your support and kindness makes all the difference in the world, and we truly appreciate those of you who move that needle for us. It's time for us to get out of here. Thanks again to Joseph Fender for taking us on this week's adventure and introducing us to the Nick Heller series and the latest release, House on Fire. Click on the links, check out his work, and remember, the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. 2 a.m. and I'm still awake writing a song If I get it all down on paper It's no longer inside of me Threatening the life it belongs to And I feel like I'm naked in front of the crowd Cause these words are my diary Screaming out loud And I know that you'll use them However you want to But you can't jump the track We're lying cars on the cable And a life's like an hourglass Glued to the table No one can find the real one
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.